sellers are saying, well, my buyers don't want to meet with me in person. Well, they want to meet you in person because you don't want to meet in person. It's easier for you to sit in your pajamas and hop on a Zoom call. But the thing about selling, professional selling, and this isn't something new, this is something forever, is that the great salespeople, when they're working with a qualified prospect, they're driving the process. They're bending the buyer's process back to the sales process. That's what gives them a higher win rate. And it allows them to engineer the relationship. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Win Rate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jeb Blunt. And Jeb is one of my guests on this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. As most of you know, Jeb is CEO of Sales Gravy, an international sales training firm. He's also one of the most prolific authors of excellent sales books, including a perennial favorite, Fanatical Prospecting. My other guest today for this really lively discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates include Mark Cox. Mark is founder of In the Funnel Sales Coaching and host of the Selling Well podcast. Great podcast you should listen to. And also joining us is Brent Keltner. Brent is president of Winalytics and author of a book titled The Revenue Acceleration Playbook. Now, one listener note before we jump into today's discussion. If you haven't already, urge you to subscribe to my newsletter, Win Rate Wednesday. Over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive this weekly newsletter, and perhaps you should as well. Each week, you receive one actionable tip to help you accelerate and improve your win rates and a bunch of other great sales advice as well. To subscribe, visit my website. That's andypaul.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. All right, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Hello, and welcome everyone to this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. And I'm so excited to be joined by my guests today, Jeb Blount. Mark Cox, Brent Keltner, and I'm going to give everybody just a chance. I know I just spoke a little bit about them to introduce themselves. So, Sure. I'm the CEO of SalesGrave, a global sales training firm, and the author of 15 books, including Fanatical Prospecting, <laughs> Sales EQ, Objections, and Inc. Books. I think I told you the last time we talked, you make me feel so inadequate. 15 books. <laughs> right. What am I doing with my spare time? I'm sitting here, I think I'm working hard. In the meantime, Jeb's written two books. And they're good books as well, which is the thing that's even more frustrating about them. It's not like he's ripping off junk. It's good stuff. So Sure are great books. Uh, yeah, appreciate Thank you. Joining Mark Cox. I'm Mark Cox. I run In the Funnel Sales Coaching. We're a group of sales coaches and consultants that help companies sell better through consulting or training. And we've just released our online academy, which is the Peloton for B2B sales. What's it called? The Peloton for B2B sales? It's called the In the Funnel Sales Academy. Okay. So, Brent. Brent Keltner, president of Winalytics. We are a sales and revenue acceleration consultancy. We work mostly with sales, but also marketing and customer success teams. And I'm the author of just one book uh, called The Revenue Acceleration Playbook. Well, Mark is working on his book. I know that for a fact. I am. And I, again, feeling inadequate here. But maybe we can just talk about getting that book out the door. I've recently engaged with Andy's publisher. Sorry, Andy's editor. Right. And thank you for that, Andy. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. I too am working on another book next year, book number four, but I'm not going to live long enough to do 15. So sure you will. <laughs> no. Just got to pick up the pace, Andy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Got to go to three a year. To... Anyway. Okay. So, first question I don't know if people saw this uh, article. It, it came out last week. It was from a leaked audio from an internal meeting at Zoom where Eric Wan, the CEO, basically was 
calling people back to the office because didn't think Zoom was a very good vehicle for building trust. Wow. I thought, oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> Isn't that? I was wondering, I said, trust is a foundation for everything and without trust, we'll be slow. So thus you all need to come back into person so we can build this level of trust. Just wondering reactions of everybody since we've all become so dependent on that technology. Jeb. Well, I, in virtual selling, a book I wrote back uh, during the pandemic, uh, we talked about blending and blending is, especially in the sales world, it's choosing the communication channel at any given point in the sales process, it's going to give you the highest possibility of landing the deal or getting the outcome that you desire at the lowest cost of time, effort, and money. Right. So when I, when I wrote virtual selling, I was very clear that virtual Zoom video wasn't the end all of end all. It was just part of the whole channel, part of the whole program. And so what a lot of CEOs, I think, are figuring out is that when you're virtual all the time, that doesn't necessarily create deeper relationships and trust. And the thing, same thing in sales. If you're working on complex deals that are large and people have to make risky decisions, there's a point where you're going to give yourself a leg up if you get on a plane, get in a car, get on a train, go see Absolutely. people in person. And by the way, same thing with your large customers. I don't see all of my largest customers, some customers who spend millions of dollars with us, I don't see them you know, every single day or every single week, sometimes I only see them once a year, but we have to blend in those conversations. And by the way, as a company, as a workforce, we, we never left the office. We never really shut down during COVID. And, and we are still a office-based organization because of exactly what he said. I, I do not believe in remote work for organizations that want to move faster Although we do work remotely sometimes, I'm working remotely right now, it's, and we've always been a company that said, hey, if you need to go do something, go do it. But as a whole, as a group, we come together, work in the office, work with each other, and then we just have a flexible workplace so that when people need to be in different places, they have the ability to do that. And that's exactly what Zoom's done for us is the ability to do what we're doing right now. I'm yeah. in Georgia, Mark's in in Canada right. and you're in California. I don't know where Brent is, but we're, we're all in Not different choosing. places and we can have this conversation. Austin. Boston. Boston. So Mark, what's your take on that? I was really happy to see it. I'll take it from the, the perspective, the second perspective that Jeb shared. I believe that organizations work better when they're all together in the same room. There's so much informal communication, connection, relationship building. It is so important for the inner workings of the organization. And so I think someone like Zoom doing this will bellwether to, first of all, lots of other technology firms out there. They'll point to that when they're speaking to their own organizations to try and get them back. I will say we're in Toronto, as Jim mentioned, it was a little behind everybody else, of course, when COVID hit and so forth and back. We're still a little behind in terms of back to the office. And we had a client where we were doing private custom training for a group of, of folks over the last few weeks. And that organization has, is only asking those people to come to the office one day a month. And we were in talking to them about this training workshop we're going to be setting up over multiple different weeks. We said, hey, we've got to get everybody in a room for this. So this separate and distinct to what you're doing, we've got to get them in a room. And the impact of being to be in a room when you're doing a collaborative training workshop, and of course, Brent and Jeb and Andy, this night and day 
versus trying to do this remotely. We do this remotely when we're training all, all over the sure. world and that kind of stuff. But it's so good to be in a room so you can get the real reaction from people and keep them engaged. So I'm, I was pleased to see it. Yeah, it seemed to me like COVID sort of gave life to a trend that was starting before COVID, which was sellers not wanting to travel. And I spoke to an enterprise sales group in the fall before COVID started. And it was in New York City and it was yeah, mostly SaaS sellers and, and sales leaders. And I said, show of hands. If you have a six-figure opportunity, who gets on a plane and goes and visits them? Virtually no one. <laughs> and I said, huh, well, if I was competing against you, I would win all that business because I'd get Agreed. on a plane. Yeah, I'd spend a thousand bucks to get on an airplane and go visit. And it's like, so I think like COVID sort of has accentuated that trend. But now, yeah, Brent, I'm interested in what you're hearing is people want you to come visit now. That's what I'm hearing from customers. Yeah, I, I actually, I, you guys have probably seen the research of like Forrester and Gardner and Andy and maybe a year or two old, but um, I think our buyers have gotten used to not actually having to welcome us to the office, not have to disrupt their day, not have to walk us to coffee. We're not part of their organization until we've sold them something. And so I actually think we, Jeb's right, it's always multi-channel, but I think a lot of our buyers, they don't want to see us until we're kind of barely deep down the path and they think there is some value. And so where you started, that means the skills to build trust and the skills to personalize value, right? Become significant differentiators for any sales organization. If you actually help your team think about how do you just learn something about your buyer in every call so you can come back to, they're the hockey grandma, right? They vacation in Nantucket. Right. Well, whatever it is that you can build some kind of personal rapport, Andy, I love that painting over your shoulder. Like who did that? Right. So I, we always say, use the opportunity to differentiate by personalizing and then personalizing value, hearing really clearly why they're talking to you, playing that back, putting it in your email, putting it in your next deck. Cause they don't, you're going to do a lot of virtual selling and you can use it as an opportunity. If I can jump in just yeah, real quickly on this, uh, the, like, I, I think that w if we go back to when the pandemic happened, so I, I wrote this book, virtual selling, having conversations with sales teams and the sellers are saying, nobody wants to meet with you on video. And in the book, I'm, I write about this, but they don't want to meet you on video because you don't want to meet on video and you're telling them it's okay. So you're not dictating the sales process. Likewise, flip forward three years and the sellers are saying, well, my buyers don't want to meet with me in person. Well, they want to meet you in person because you don't want to meet in person. It's easier for you to sit in your pajamas and hop on a Zoom call. But the thing about selling, professional selling, and this isn't something new, this is something forever, is that the great salespeople, when they're working with a qualified prospect, they're driving the process. They're bending the buyer's process back to the sales process. That's what gives them a higher win rate. And it allows them to engineer the relationship. The trick here is for the seller, because we have all these tools now, to they're choosing the tools, they're choosing the channel to reduce you know, their cost and their time and effort so they can put more in the funnel. And this year, just to illustrate this, because I go on a lot of sales calls myself, mm -hmm. I've had, I, before the pandemic, I did almost everything virtually because we're global and we're all over the place. And we, there's, it's just not always practical to get an airplane. But this year, I've got all of my big deals. I've gotten on an airplane and gone. 
and I'm a hundred percent close rate. And I closed a 1300 person, 1300 person sales training deal. Just put your arm, wrap your arms around. That's a big deal. It's a very rare deal, but a big deal because I went and got on the airplane and I went and met with the, the entire executive group and listened to them and spent time with them. Right. And I walked out I, I we, I knew the deal was closed when I walked out. It took a few more weeks to get a contract signed, but What I was making the point of to my team and to the salespeople that we train is that I'm the one that said, I'm coming there. I didn't go, hey, do you want to meet in person? I said, hey, our next step is I'm getting on a plane, get your people together. I'm going to be there. And you know what? When you're, when you have that confidence and you drive the next step that way, they say, yes. And oh, by the way, if they had a a mumbled, I don't know if we can get everybody together, I probably wouldn't have been working on the deal because they would have been telling me. Hey, we're not that into you. We're not going to buy anyway. I'm going to go spend my time on something else. Yeah. It gets to this thing I always talk about is, sure, we can do these things virtually. As I say, we started virtually selling when we telephone was invented, right? Mm -hmm. So we've been doing it for a long time. But just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Right? And to your point, Jeb, Jeb is like, yeah, there's a time when it makes sense to get on a plane because it's going to make a difference in the outcome and you go do it. And I think the ice, I think you frame it well, is there's sort of this fear and sellers are really driving that almost more than buyers. I agree. I apologize if, if this was in somebody's book here where I originally picked it up and pulled it. But for those things that are most important in your life, you're face to face. My first date with my beautiful wife was not hey, trying to do this over the phone. I met her face to face. And while I was there and, and capable of giving my best effort. And if you met my wife, you know, she's three levels above me, was super, super lucky. There was no chance I was getting her on a first date over the phone. So these things were, were most compelling. And I'll just add to, to build on what Brent said as well. Jeb, you're right. You can drive that process. And as the CEO of, of Sales Gravy, you've got some of that, you've got credentials, of course, where they're going to take that meeting with you and everybody's going to be there given your reputation. I think the sales organization working for you, they have to earn that right with the buying team they're working Mm -hmm. with through research and value and insight so that everybody's pretty comfortable. It's not wasting their time. They're not going to get pitched at when they get in the room. And so, so sometimes it's without those credentials, this is where we have to put that effort in and make the whole conversation about that buyer because we've earned the right to start to take hold of that process. Yeah. And, and Mark, build, building on that a little bit, because there are a lot of segments of the market. We all know, Andy, you and I had talked about this, kind of the explosion of these 5, 10K SaaS offerings where they're, the whole business model is kind of screwed up because we we're, we're trying to live with 12% conversion rates. But there are a lot of businesses where it really doesn't support face-to-face selling, the economics. A lot of enterprise, 100%, professional services, 100%, sure. but... I think, Mark, something you point to is you can, I think one way to man it, be in control of the sales process is just the way you manage the conversation. Trusted advisor is kind of cliche, but there's a way to manage the conversation where, Mark, you're showing at every phase, you are very buyer-centric. Exactly. You focus on what they're trying to solve for. You're very intentionally deciding what do we do next. And you guys build those skills with teams as do we, and you just see when they do it well, their buyers are so thankful to have a meaningful conversation as opposed to somebody just pitching at them. Well, so I, I think, think that you can set the tenor that way as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. You sort of were sort of referring to it a little bit earlier, Brent, as buyers, as we've seen the data from Gartner, blah, 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 Forrester. Buyers don't want to talk to sellers. Buyers need to talk to sellers, right? Yeah. Oftentimes, if to be able to help them make a decision. In the absence of sellers, sure, they could do it, but it's not going to be as good as it could be if you get the right person engaged with them. So you know, question- that, but that kind of data, by the way, that, that those studies, honestly, that that is, it's such bullshit. I'm sorry, no, forgive my language, because no, buyers, anybody who ever bought anything didn't want to talk to the salesperson. Well, that's- <laughs> no buyer wants to take a prospecting column. If you pulled a buyer in 1970 and said, do you yeah. want to talk to a salesperson? They would have said, no. Yeah, I there think are the some Gardner- things... These days, they don't have to talk to a salesperson for them. That's fine. But for us to like draw any conclusion from a study where you ask somebody, do you want to talk to salespeople? There's no conclusion from that. It's always been that way. Our job is to intrude and interrupt and start the conversation. And as as Brent said, you demonstrate the value of having me on your team that's helping you solve a problem. Whether that's on the phone or video or text or however you're doing smoke signals, that's your job. Yeah. Well, as and I hadn't finished because I always say in response to the Gartner data, and I've written this on LinkedIn, it's completely wrong. To your point, Jeff, 100% of buyers don't want to talk to salespeople. And it's yep. been that way since the first salesperson existed on the face yeah. of the earth. Yeah. None of my buyers, I, mean, I had great relationships with buyers and sold some really big deals, but no one woke up in the morning and said, God, I sure hope Andy calls me today. <laughs> they didn't want to talk to them. I didn't say that. Want to I do to... every day, Andy. I wake oh, yeah, up. I, you know, sure. I hope Andy will call me. <laughs> I hope Andy calls it right. They didn't want to talk to them the first time. Then it's up to you to actually earn that right for the yeah. next conversation and the next conversation. And, and frankly, there, this is where we do see a gap with many of the folks, the younger folks that we get a chance to work with. Maybe it's not industry expertise or sales acumen, but just general business acumen. Mm-hmm. Coaching them on the funnel so they can actually approach an industry and understand how to maybe leverage AI to learn a little more about the industry. Mm -hmm. You understand what's going on with a particular buyer I'm going to by using AI to maybe take a look at a job description or two. Hey, what do these people do? That's where I think when you're on the receiving end of those calls, you get a bit tired if someone really doesn't have an interest in understanding your business or or they just don't have any business acumen whatsoever. Then you get that second or third meeting. Now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizant, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizant's US data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. Seven million human verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate, deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. Yeah, I think I think the keyword there, interesting your guys' take on this, and then we're going to jump into an AI question because I've got one prepared. 
is <laughs> I think back to my first sales job. I was selling into the construction industry. I was selling computers, real computers back in the day, a room full of metal. Yeah. I was 21. I looked 16. I knew diddly about business. And yet I got lots of time from these CEOs. And this became my MBA, right? Because I showed up and as to your point, the word you interested, right? I showed up as interested. I wasn't interested in pitching something because God knows I didn't really know what to sell. So my only defense was, well, gosh, I am curious. Let's find out what's going on with them. What's important to them? How can I, how might I be able to help them? And they gave me all the time in the world. I didn't know anything. Eventually I developed the acumen because I learned from my customers, but I think if you don't, yes, I agree hundred percent. We need to do a better job of educating about business acumen for sellers, but yeah, just show up and be interested in the other person and start learning about what's important to them. That's not faking it. That's being authentic and that's learning. And Andy, building on that and coming back to what Jeb said, I really like this phrase, like showing you, showing them you're part of their team to solve this problem. And maybe you get to a no decision, but it's let's as a team decide whether yes or no. And I think one of the things where uh, you can, what you say is better to work with a seller. You know, we all know that in this current environment, there's multiple buyers on the other side, six to eight, again, Gardner Research and whatever we believe we, we know in our experience. Lots of people are being brought in because they can, because of Zoom and because of the digital media. And so they're, I think, totally under-leveraged opportunity as they bring all their people together to actually get them to cross-talk. And this is what I've heard in the conversations to date mm-hmm. and how do other people respond and how would you guys prioritize? And now, Jeb, to your point, you're kind of showing them you might be able to help them solve a problem that they haven't been able to solve together that where we have big, bigger and bigger buying groups is a huge opportunity to be kind of part of the team in a value-added way. Yeah. I think that, I think on the business acumen piece, I think you're exactly right, Andy. I, and Mark, you're right on the money. I had this conversation with uh, Will Fertini at Zoom Info this morning about the, there's always this focus on teaching product knowledge and, and should we spend more time with younger salespeople, just teaching them the language of the customers we sell to and what are the biggest issues they're running into? And the people that, that are making these decisions, Brent, on the buying committee, they all have different evaluation standards. They have all different issues. And just really helping them understand emotionally what these people are going through. But what Andy said, I think, is the best advice that you could possibly give a young salesperson, and that is to go be interested. In my 20s, I, I remember like one of the ways that I got in the door is I would call Brent and I would say, Hey, Brent, my name's Jeb. I'm, this is the company I work for. Look, I sell something to companies like yours. But more than anything, I did some research on you. You got a great background. I'm young. And I'm just wondering if I could come in, just ask you a few questions because I'm trying to grow my career and I want to learn a little bit. And those yes. conversations were powerful. Like, they, And people would spend hours with me to talk about themselves and to teach me. And, and that, by the way, the, today we, I run a company that works, we're, we're agnostic in terms of industry. And I tell people all the time in my twenties, because I went to all these different companies and learned today, when I walk into companies, I can see patterns that I wouldn't have seen had I not, as Andy said, actually been interested in learning about those companies. Yeah. Such a good point. Sounds like Jeb, you can claim to be one of the forefathers of the podcast. Well, Jeb's had a podcast for a long time. Yeah, I think that some of that, and the point about showing up interested is it gives you confidence. One of the things I learned from that is, hey, I can go talk to anybody, right? If I show up and I'm interested, I do my homework, I'm prepared, 
I don't need to have the answers. If I have the questions, I'm going to learn the answers and information I can take and apply to the next time I talk to somebody else is very similar. But yeah, this ability to show up and be confident or curious was confidence building. Well, well, we've all done it, by the way, right? We, we get approached by lots of vendors and you've taken the time to work with somebody who showed that authentic curiosity and they were just diligent about wanting to learn. There's something very attractive about that. You want to help, right? There, there's something giving. Whereas that wall goes up again when somebody's pitching or doing all those other things we've spoken of. So I, I think it's great advice for a young person, but you can't fake it. It's not a veneer you can put up. Right. You actually have to really want this and want to learn and be curious and have those questions and then earn the right. But that's another piece of advice we always give young folks today. Sometimes I think they come into our industry thinking there has to be this shine or veneer or a fancy jacket or a pair of gla- whatever it is. Like yours, by the way. I, well, yeah, maybe I still believe that. No, but, but instead of just being the best version of themselves and being yeah. open and authentic and all the rest of it, taking away a little bit of the veneer, show up as your best self, but yeah. be you. Well, I wanted to build on something that Jeb said too about recognizing patterns, because to me, acumen and sales is about not understanding why one situation is the same as the other. It's just recognizing how it's different, Mm. right? That's where the opportunity lies for sellers. It's yeah, I understand the patterns, but what I'm looking for is the pattern interrupt, right? And, but so often we train our sellers, Hey, here are the discovery questions you ask, go check the boxes as you ask them. And they're not looking for these disrupted patterns that say, Hey, this is where the opportunity is. I think, Andy, when you touch on discovery, there's another real topic for us here. I I think the opportunity for some of the folks listening is to take discovery away from an activity that just helps us qualify a prospect and migrate it to sincere, authentic investigation that does help us, but really helps them. This is really part of this process where we show that insight, we show that value, And the fact we have a formal discovery process with some discipline and methodology shows them we know what we're doing. But I think today we always get in our workshops a lot of these questions about how do I close better? The answer to that is actually do a better discovery (laughs) and the client will move you forward. And no one ever closes themselves, but they're going to move themselves a lot closer there if we've, through discovery, built a real business case with them. So here's the following question that though, let me ask the following question. Cause this one, I saw this last week on LinkedIn and it just, it drove me nuts. And that's from people. I thought people, we all know who I thought should have known better as they said, you need to know the answer to every question you're asking discovery before you ask it. Can you? And I'm like, how could you? I'm like, what? Okay. So this, I, I come from a long line of attorneys. Here we go. Yeah, and judges, and I almost became an attorney and figured out that I could make more money in sales. So, right. But purpose of discovery for attorneys is to find the answers to the questions that they don't know. Like they don't know the answers. They do that in discovery. When they get into a courtroom and they're asking you questions, they're not doing discovery anymore. They they don't ask questions in a courtroom that they don't already know the answer to. Exactly. But the discovery process is just getting people to talk. It's looking for those openings. So yeah, what I, I don't even yeah, I don't even understand where that advice came from. That's just 
That's like somebody got hit in the head with a moron stick. Well, I said this this person very well. I mean, it was just like I was like stunned. I was like, that's some of the, the stupidest things I've heard read on LinkedIn in a long time. It's just like this is a being interested. I already exactly. know what you're gonna say. So if I already know that, why am I doing discovery? Right. Because well, we talked about before, part of the reason why buyers need to talk to sellers, they need somebody to ask them the questions they don't know to ask themselves. Right. I'm curious if anybody, we have a, we think about an endpoint to discovery, like what we're focused on, just so it doesn't become an inquisition. Curious if how any of you coached, you need discovery, but discovery can't go on forever, right? There's a, a point where you probably have enough to pivot. Well, Brent, I, I give you a real quick, oh, go ahead, Mark. No, please, Jeff. After Just you. throw a real quick framework. Discovery is a dual process. So it's empathy and outcome. And so what really great reps do, and this is difficult to teach. So I don't want to, I don't want to lay this out there and say, I've got the perfect formula for teaching people how to do this because great discovery is completely organic. Like you're building on the next question. You're not thinking about what you're going to ask. So it is a conversation, not an interrogation. And Brent, to your point, what young reps and we'll, I'll say reps that are in their twenties, going to their thirties, who are just getting started. What they struggle the most, most with is when is it over? Like, when do I move to the next step? Veteran reps who have a lot of experience have typically mastered this. Like they understand where they need to be. But the dual process is being able to stand in the person's shoes, see things from their perspective, ask relevant questions to Andy's point that make them think, right? So anything that you could say or pitch is better delivered in the form of a question that creates insight so that they're thinking themselves. So and true. then you understand your outcome, like what's my targeted next step? So in a larger deal, a more complex deal, your targeted next step usually isn't discovery close, or your targeted next step is discovery one. I got Now I got another layer of discovery I've got to go into. Now I've got to go meet these stakeholders. Now I want to come in and have a consensus meeting. So as long as you know what your targeted next step is, the key thing is the ability to demonstrate empathy so that you're having a conversation. And at the same time, you've got a roadmap, like you've just, before you go in, that I need to move to this next step. And the hard part, this is what, and this is my, this is my opinion working with, you know, thousands and thousands of salespeople is that sometimes there are things in sales you just kind of got to learn from experience and you can run role plays and you can run exercises to help people kind of figure this out on their own, but it's that place where they know, okay, I'm wrapping this up because I got the information that I need in this particular situation to move to that next step in the process and advance it. It's time to transition. And the only way, Brent, that I've really you know learned how to, to teach that is either through being there with them and then walking out and just saying, okay, what, what did you do well? Where could we improve? Or through a lot of intensive role play where you're putting them situationally in cases where they're they're moving into a discovery conversation, they know what the next step is, and then having them on their own get that awareness that, okay, I've exhausted my questions without moving into that place where there's this like really long silence and they're going, okay, what do I do next? And then what happens to your point is that they start thinking about a question to ask, but at that point, they're just asking sport questions. They're not actually moving the deal forward. Yeah. Mark. I just like these two simple frameworks to think about. For, for significant transactions, the senior executive is going to look at something and go, what compelling problem are we solving and what's the business case look like for it? 
And, and so, so as we work through that discovery process, I don't, I, I completely agree with Jeb. It's got to be a little bit fluid, but at the end of the day, while you're working with that team of buyers, they don't go through this all the time. So they don't always have perfect answers in terms of what's the payback need to be? What's the ROI need to be? How do they make decisions? But if I felt I had a compelling business case for a solution and there was a compelling problem so that if I was pulled in front of the senior executive and they said, why should we do this? And those folks don't want 15 pages of data. They want simple answers to very direct questions. That, then I'd start to feel like I was comfortable, that we, have, we had a reason and we could help that organization. And this should take priority given the 50 other things they could do. So I try to that Excel. What is that return on investment look like? And what's the compelling problem you're solving for? And it sounds easy, but it's very difficult to get there with some form of con consensus with a, a large buying group. And the last thing I'll say about the large buying group, maybe we're picking on Gardner and the team again. If you sold large things you're, for an extended period of time, there was always a large group involved. For, That's for years yeah. before in the yes. funnel, we did large outsourcing deals for hundreds of millions of dollars. There was 12 and 14 people involved in those Always. transactions, very significant groups. So the big buying group isn't really new. Maybe it's yeah. new for smaller transactions. Yeah. One thing I would add is, I, again, this is based on my experience selling large deals, is discovery really never ended. I resist this sort of, hey, we've got exit criteria for discovery stage, and then we turn off our curiosity and we go away. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, your buyer is going through a process. You're helping educate them. You're helping them move towards making a decision to make a change in their business is you need to keep asking questions. Yeah. You need to keep helping them think about things. Yet I see too many sellers uh, you talk to just, they start turn that switch off. Well, we're done with discovery. Now we're on to the next phase. And it's like, well, no, you still got to be asking questions. Or reconfirming when time passes or reconfirming with a new entrance or yeah, coming. I talk about this in my book is sort of you'd go through the reconfirming process and confirm. And then the question you always ask us, oh, is that right? Do we agree? Yeah, great. So what are we missing? Yeah. Such a great question. So what are we great missing? Question. And it just, you ask that all the time. People think, oh yeah, something comes up, right? And if you're that seller that asks that question, you find out what that other thing is, you have the advantage. One of the questions I ask uh, Brent sort of as a transition when I feel like maybe I've exhausted everything is I always say that Andy's question is brilliant. So I just will steal that one. But I always say, I've asked you a bunch of questions. What question didn't I ask you that I should have? Yeah, love it. Yeah. And that'll, that'll either, they'll say, this is beautiful. But to Andy's point, even when we're sitting down and we're doing final presentations, we're, we're walking through solutions, I'll kick a meeting off and say, here are the things that we've learned about you. Here are the things that we feel like are important to you. We're about to give you our proposal. Before we get started, tell me what we missed. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Multiple occasions or got called to like present to the board or the managing board as European companies oftentimes, and they were expecting a presentation. I'd go to the whiteboard, just do exactly what you said, Jeb. I'm just going to lay out what we understand about what your requirements are and what you're trying to achieve and what's really most important to you in making this decision. And you never show a presentation because then they say, Oh, you get us, right? Yep. You understand us. Yeah. And I can't remember how many times I win deals because I was always selling as the underdog because 
selling big stuff against big companies from a, a startup is they said, yeah, we went with you because you're the only one that made us feel like you understood. Yep. It's great. That happened then, to me recently. I do discovery calls when I'm doing virtual on a board, one of those buy boards or a, a yeah. smart board. And we were having this meeting with a CEO and one of his deputies. And you sell trainings. When you're selling training to these guys, this is a cultural thing for them. So they're worried about a lot of stuff, especially ROI, but a lot of it's just intangible that they can't touch. So this cat's talking, blah, blah, just like a, you would typically see a CEO, blah, 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 blah. And I'm writing down on the board behind me so they can see my notes. When I do discovery virtually, you can see my notes and I'm writing down. The guy stops in mid-sentence and leans forward into the camera and says, oh my God, we've had this conversation with a dozen organizations. You're the only ones that are really listening to us. Wow. It was exactly what you said, Andy. I'm just ri I'm writing down what the guy's saying. <laughs> and But to that person, that's what it felt like. So if I could wrap what everybody said in a bow, that's exactly why what Mark said about closing or about discovery is so right, because it's where 80% of your investment should be in sales because you close deals in discovery, not at some point in the future where you sit down, throw out a couple of lines and get someone to right. sign on the line that is dotted. It is in discovery that they make the decision to do business with you. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed-loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed-lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed-loss in the CRM, and the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Lego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com slash demo. Yeah, I don't want to add a, a nuance to that too. It's just going to transition to our next question is, is, obviously we're talking a lot about AI and sales these days and so on. And, and I was reading this, this abstract or summary of a study that was done using AI systems for medical decision-making. And they are showing there's this great sort of adoption curve, but then it started tailing off over time. And when they 
and queried the patients, what they said is, it just didn't understand my unique situation. Yes, I may have a disease that 100,000 other people have. I feel it differently. Yes, my pain is different. And it, it doesn't understand that, right? And I think this is, this is really a discovery thing, right? Is, is we go into customers and we train sellers to show up and say, look, we've worked with a dozen companies just like you, or hundreds of companies just like you, and we know exactly. And it's like, and what the customer is saying is, they're not really listening to your point, Chubb. This, yeah, we, we look at life a little differently. Our business, we do it a little differently. We think our problems are a little different. This gets back to sort of the pat and interrupt thing we talked about before, is you have to be able to get to that level where you understand why they think they're different. What their view of the world is that is unique from everybody else, not the way they're the same as everybody else. When you get to that point, then you really have this level of understanding. And I think this is something that AI isn't going to be very good at. Where the person's going to have to be the one to get to that level to do that. Yeah, I mean, the, Race, the most the snowflake phenomenon. Yeah, yeah the, well, to some degree. Well, it, well, the most insatiable, unquenchable human need is to feel important. And one right. of the easiest ways to make someone feel unimportant is tell them that they're not unique, like you're mm -hmm. like everybody else. Yeah. And then one of our most driving needs as human beings, if not our most driving need as human beings, our, our want is to feel like other people understand us. That's why we mm -hmm. tell long stories and we articulate things. And so in discovery, you're filling up an emotional need for people. Even if I walked in and knew all the answers, the most important thing that I can do is ask questions and listen. And if I didn't say anything at all, other than just sit down and let the person talk, they're going to feel significant because I did that. And because that need is so insatiable, when that happens, you give the other person the greatest gift that you can give them, your time, your attention, your caring. And Brent, when you were talking about moving to the next step or advancing a deal, even with a large stakeholder group, when people feel important, even by the way, naysayers who are wedded to another vendor, when you make them feel important, they feel a need to reciprocate by giving you more. And it's one of the real secrets of getting deals to advance and being in control of the deal is giving people that. And it's so easy. All you have got to do is just ask some good questions and shut up. Yeah. 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 We make sales so complicated. We, and and I'll say on AI, because we do a lot of work with marketing teams as well as sales, we find a lot more application in marketing than sales. It's a great way to generate blogs quickly. It's a great way to generate more personalization in your outbound campaigns. We haven't found a lot of application to sales. I'm curious if others feel differently about that. Well, Jeb's writing the book about it, okay. but I was, I just want to put it in context, right? Because I, we, it's so hyped right now, right? And so I was sort of thinking about this recently is how hyped it's been. And just sort of tracking back my own career in sales, which started in 1977, right? So it was my 46th year doing this. Wow. Yeah, I'm still alive. But the big thing in 77, the big innovation that was transforming business, FedEx, right? And it started in 76. We could send proposals overnight to people, right? This was revolutionary, right? Somebody on the other side of the country, or whatever, we could send it to them. They get it the next day. And I was typed by hand because we didn't have computers yet, but that's the next thing. So then you get into the early eighties, you get the you know, personal computer and that, that was going to well, revolutionize the fax scale. machine. You get the well, fax that predated oh, me a little bit, but <laughs> thank you very much. But there wasn't, it was still pretty new by the time I was starting sales, but then you have, we got the personal computer came next in the early eighties. That was going to revolutionize things. Right. And then I think one that was high, people never talk about in sales that 
I always think, well, they should. It's digital PVXs, right? Digital switches. What did that enable? Direct inward dialing. As a seller, suddenly our people we were trying to get to had a direct number we could call that didn't exist before. We always had to go through a switchboard. I was selling to companies that still had people like in the movies that were moving, connecting the lines together. But if they didn't have that, every call, sellers they always call about how hard it is, is to get hold of a, a customer. Every call went through a receptionist, right? You never, anybody. So then the big revolution suddenly direct and we're done with, oh, that's going to transform sales. And we can start to go through it. Voicemail followed thereafter and then email. And it's like, we've had all these things we've hyped as being, this is going to, these are game changers, right? And what we've done is we've adopted them. We've adapted them to what we're doing. They become part of what we do. And so I guess really the question is AI at the end of the day, going to be any different than that. It's just going to be another tool that we use that helps us do certain things better. But to me, after all these years, all these transformations, study after study, like one Gardner showed uh, a couple months ago about surveyed buyers, what are the factors that most influence their decisions? They were all the human elements, right? Product and price wasn't on the list. And so is it going to be any different in terms with AI? Isn't it just, we got to find a way to help us be better human sellers, to use the tool to help us be better in that human dimension. It feels like it's going to be different. And so, so if you know, over there, I would say go back another nine months, there was a four month period of time where I'd never seen a product as hyped as chat GPT. I couldn't go to a meeting anywhere where that didn't get brought up organically. And so we had somebody on our podcast, great guy named Minter Dial. Maybe he's been on some of your yeah, podcasts. Yeah. And his latest book's called Artificial Empathy. He was part of a small experiment of people that were given a chatbot where they were trying to induce empathy into the interaction. He had to work with the chatbot for a week. And they were, ta- were talking about the emotional connection to the chatbot after a week. And it was there. There was an emotional, it wasn't perfect, like, like anything, but it, it was there. So it does feel that this combination of data and quantum computing is ca- causing this a- exponential shift in what's happening out there. Most technologies are getting impacted sure. by it. And so, so I do think AI is, is going to be different. And you'd ask, Brett, how would we use it today? How are we using it today? You've already seen, everybody here has already seen the technologies where before I reach out to Jeb for the first time, I can get a disk profile on Jeb based on his digital footprint. They'll give me five suggestions on ways to reach out, how to communicate, given my mm-hmm. disk profile and Jeb's jet. This is all very early days. Sure. To think when this starts to develop, I think this will change a, a lot of things moving forward. Now, nothing's going to change at the end of the day, human conversation that's going to be required, but it's certainly going to help with that human conversation. Well, that was my point. This, yeah. It will help. But at the end of the day, I think there's so many people have rushed to say, yeah, this is, this means the death of sales. Yeah. We've seen that a bazillion times. How many times people talk about the death of sales? (laughs) But I think that, yeah, I love the phrase from Jeff Colvin's book, humans are underrated, where he says, yeah, the, you know, the key skill in the 21st century is learning how to become more intensely human, Hmm. right? Because then this is what's really required. Yes. All these other things will help us perhaps become more intensely human, but we need to focus on ourselves. And I don't know, Jeb, what do you think? 
So we give you three different perspectives or three sort of wrap around this. And this will partly answer um, Brent's question. If you think about human beings, so the things that we were just talking about, you make me feel important, you understand me, and this concept of us getting connected to things that are machines and not real. Human beings, we have always have a tendency uh, is to turn something that is is an inanimate object into something that we treat like it's a person. I don't know what the exact term for that is off the top of my head, but but morphology. Yeah, answer. I was. I was. I just didn't want to say it and sound like I was an idiot. So, but that's what we do. Even our pets. Like my dog cannot talk, but I talk to my dog, sweet Hazel, and I treat her like she is. She's a little tiny itty bitty Dotson. So, so. But on the robot side, on the make me feel important side, I just want you to think as a human being what it feels like to be manipulated. Just what that raw emotion feels like. That's why we don't like robots. Now, we don't mind talking to a robot when it's clear that we're dealing with a robot. But human beings, as a rule, don't want to feel manipulated. Mm -hmm. This is why on our inbound chat on our website, and we get a lot every day, an entire team that does nothing but chat. The number one question, and we probably get this five to ten times a day, is, am I talking to a robot? And the good news for our people is that they never talk to a robot. Every single human being they talk to there is real, live. If we don't have a live human being on, we don't answer chat. So we know that human beings feel that way. And now I want you to think about ChatGBT and all the other AI bots out there. Right now, in fact, I'm writing a book right now on on ChatGPT. So I'm using ChatGPT for some of the things that I write in the book. Like I asked ChatGPT to tell me things about itself that I don't know. And it's amazing. Like, it's absolutely Mm. mind-blowing. And I think Mark is right. I think it was an iPhone moment for us. It was the moment where everything changed. Yes. And when, and I remember sitting in bed one night and I wrote a book called, I wrote a story, I asked to write a story uh, called the something Zigzag Coyote. And then I showed it to my wife and said, you're not going to believe this, but a machine just wrote that. Everything at that moment changed. But when you're in a world where you can't trust the information that you're being given, that it came from a human being, the email that rep just sent you, the thing that they just wrote you, the letter, all of those things, you don't know that a real human being put real effort into it. Think I want you to go back to feel significant, mm-hmm. that they didn't put any time into it. Now, nothing you can trust. You can't even, you can't even trust voices. You can't trust that you can't see. You can't trust yeah. video. All of a sudden, what happened is the human... Right, the human conversation, real-time conversation like we're having right now, that just got elevated. It's more important than ever. So these dystopian people on LinkedIn and doing webinars that are using this as clickbait, my belief is that they're wrong. My belief is that sales and sales professionals are going to become more important. Now, does that mean that you're not going to have more products that people need to buy or can buy without a salesperson because they can trust Absolutely. it? Absolutely, there's going to be more. But as people are making difficult decisions, they don't know what questions to ask. The this, this salesperson's role, human to human, real time, becomes more important than ever. And that brings us to, Brent, the answer to your question, is does AI have an application in sales? And the answer is yes, but it's two different types of applications. Application number one is just for the individual salesperson. This is the person who learns prompt engineering and they can go into a chat GPT or a BARD or when Google puts it into their email or HubSpot's got it now plugged in, everybody's got AI plugged in. 
And a lot of these AI, AI tools, by the way, are AI looking for a solution to solve. I mean, a problem to solve. There's no, no problem. But if they learn how to like, manipulate yeah, those things, general. Yep. yeah, it can make them move faster. Like, for example, this morning I tapped in the chat BT. I want to see the 10 competitors to this company with a list of their websites and the names of their CEOs in a table format. And it popped it out like it took three seconds and it was there. So those things for individual reps, there's going to be things reps can do individually to make themselves better. The top tier reps are probably going to be doing those things. The bottom tier reps are never going to do those things. And the middle will dabble in it. Where the real revolution comes, in my opinion, is all of the AI that's going to be built in behind the scenes this, that reps are going to have, they're not going to have anything to do with. And that is, for example, a moonshot holy grail. Mm. Mark comes in the morning and he opens up his CRM. We use HubSpot, so we'll just say HubSpot. Opens up HubSpot. And he goes in and HubSpot says, hello, Mark, welcome to your sales day. This is awesome. I've built a list of 25 prospects that are out of your database that based on a set of signals tells me that they're moving into the buying window. Mm -hmm. And they're going to move into the buying window next month. So you're going to call them before anybody else knows this. Call them right now. And it loads up a list of people that are ready to go. And in the middle of that, it, it has pulled out information. It's looked at the signals. It's looked at their intent online. It's looked at their LinkedIn profile. And it said, here's some things about this person that you probably should know. And by the way, you might want to ask them a question about this, or this is something that they're really emotional about. And maybe it can come in and like build a disk profile of those things, but it's going to give you that information. And by the way, as you get deeper and deeper, it'll help you do stakeholder mapping. It'll help you build out those profiles. And it will help you build good, better messaging. And it'll help some salespeople who can't write, like literally can, grammatically can't write. It'll mm -hmm. make them look smarter than they were before. But that's what it's going to do. It's going to crunch data in a way that's going to get salespeople in the right place at the right time with the right message and get that engagement going. And from there, that's when all of the things that we teach and do are going to become so important because the moment of truth the robot's not going to have that conversation. Now, the robot may say, Andy, you need to follow up with Mark because it's been three days. Here are the summaries of your last conversation. Send an email that says these things. What we have to teach you is don't just trust the robot because robots are not trustworthy. They lie all the time. Seriously, lie. ChatGPT absolutely yesterday, bald-faced, told me a lie. But you, we have to teach you how to put the human back into that. So I think that the, all of those things are going to be true. And to Andy's point, it's, this is going to, it's revolutionary, Mark. There's no doubt that there was a moment this past January when you knew everything had changed forever. Mm -hmm. I, there, I totally believe that. But on the flip side of that, when, when we started thinking about social selling as th that's going to change everything and salespeople are going to be out of business and the same conversations were hap happening then. It didn't take over everything. It just became part of what we do. We're having the same issues with it that we were having before. Salespeople still use it, don't use it. It's getting messaging right. To Brent's point, it may be able to help more salespeople post things because it can take a press release and create tweets from it that give you something to work with. But it just became part of who we are. And I think AI is going to do the same thing. I, I absolutely, in my heart of hearts, think and believe that AI is going to make salespeople, good professional salespeople, more important than they ever have been before for business. And it will, at the bottom level, take low-level transactional jobs out of yep. the marketplace 
with products and services that can be totally trusted, whether you don't need a human being there, but that's, that's the evolution of sales since the beginning mm -hmm. of selling. So that, yeah. those are my, that's my opinion on it. I'd, I'd love yeah. to get your, your feedback on that, but I know there was a lot, but that's where I see it right now, based on where we are with just the research we've been doing. Sure. Brent? No, I, I'm not informed other than what I shared. So that was quite helpful. Yeah. So no, the, the framing was quite helpful. So thank you. Yeah, no, I think it was great. I, I agree. I think that when we look from the buyer experience standpoint is, yeah, let's call it just bots are going to form a, deliver a uniform, relatively uniform experience for buyers. And the differentiation will be in that conversation with the human sellers. And can the human seller show up and be the resource that the buyer needs? And to your point, Jeb, if they don't, then sure, they'll find a way to do it without them. And that line that's been moving, I'll tra trace it back to, let's say, Amazon starting serve. That line has been moving constantly. You know, what we can buy, what we're comfortable buying without talking to a human. But there's going to be a, you know, it's going to always move, but it's moving slowly. But there's always going to be some set of products due to complexity or costs where the risk is such that people still want to talk to a human. It's the same reason why medical decision systems, yeah, they actually provide better advice than human doctors. But when people have treatment decisions to make, surgery options to consider, they want to talk to a doctor. I'll give you one, one other data point here. And I, I had this conversation with my publisher as well about this, but my team has delivered just south of 10,000 hours of training so far this year to companies mm -hmm. on almost every continent. And we don't have anybody talking about this. Like nobody's asking about it. I sit down with CEOs, especially my bigger clients and go have dinner with them. They're not talking about it. When we have executives come in training rooms, they're not talking about it. The salespeople aren't asking about it. Like it's not a conversation that's coming up. You get every once in a while somebody to say, what do you think about chat GPT and how's it going to have back sales? But for the most part, it's not something that, that seems emotionally important to the on the street sales teams and the people that lead them at the CRO level and the CEO level. I think it's, and I think it's fundamentally important. I think they're thinking about these things and they're working through how are we going to to use AI to get into all of this data, especially in our CRM and make those CRMs better. But now we're back to the, the conversation we were having in 1999, which is how do we get people to put stuff in the CRM? Because the more information that's in the CRM about your customer that you gathered, the better the output the AI is going to deliver when it helps you build those lists and helps you build those conversations. Yeah. Mark. So two questions to which I don't have the answer. But two questions I think would be interesting maybe to consider for your book, Jed. One would be, how are the buyers going to be using it? So, so we're all looking at it from our perspective, but if as Brent brought up, hey, we've got a group consensus buying, they're confused at times, it's a tough process, they need help and counsel and direction, they're going to be leveraging it in a certain capacity as well. So we start to anticipate, okay, how can we help them use it to be more effective to make a good buying decision? And the other thing I think about a lot, I don't know why, but moving forward, would I want a doctor who uses it or not? So you mentioned that medical situation, not all of it, and I don't want the, the bot taking care of me, but I sure as heck want my physician using the best technology out there to figure out what's going on for me. Because one day I'm going to be playing for the Maple Leafs. That's still going to happen. Oh, really? <laughs> and I have to oh, be wow. in... I've got to be in peak, peak physical condition for 
So, so do I want to be working with professionals who are doing their best for me that aren't leveraging AI to give me the best outcome? And the answer to that is no. My doctors better start to, to leverage technology using this. Well, of course, there's the caveat, though, that Jeb brought up, which is it's just wrong some of the time. <laughs> so, that's right. That's why you need the doctor. <laughs> yeah, right? well, that's why you don't want the doctor saying, oh, yeah, this is what ChatGPT said. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, guys, we've run out of time, but uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. in. So before I head off, Jeb, tell people how they can reach you. Yeah, you can reach me at, at salesgravy.com. And uh, my email address is jeb at salesgravy.com. So just go ahead and plug that into your AI bots with the other 10,000 people that send me 100,000 emails a day. But jeb at salesgravy.com. And you can find my podcast. My podcast is, is Sales Gravy or type my name into any podcast place and obviously connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or X, and X. Instagram, and threads, and TikTok. I'm at Sales Gravy in most places. Got it. Yeah, I would say just connect with me on LinkedIn. There's only one Brent Kelter on LinkedIn, as far as I can say. And you can check wow. out our website, winalytics.com, just for resources. Perfect. And Mark? First of all, just great to meet you, Jeb. Great to meet you, Brent. Andy, thank you, as always, for allowing me to be on always, the show. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Mark. It's Mark Cox at InTheFunnel.com. Mark Cox at InTheFunnel.com. So LinkedIn or the website InTheFunnel.com. You mean it's not Mark Cox at TorontoMapleLeafs.com? That's <laughs> coming. Stay tuned. No. Stay tuned. That's Yay. coming. It's coming. It's coming. All right. Guys, thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you all again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. If you're enjoying the show, really appreciate it if you could leave a quick rating or review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. Because receiving this feedback is very important. It helps us reach a broader audience of sales professionals. So, very much appreciate your help with that. Before we go, I want to thank my guests, Jeb Blount, Mark Cox, and Brent Keltner for sharing their insights with us today. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.